You're listening to Dream Infringement with the co-hosts you love the most. The co-hosts you love the mo-wosts. Jennifer, myself, Emily, and Bobby. And here at Dream Infringement, we like to tell stories and play music based on a weekly theme. And this week's theme is all about back in the days and how they do the things they did back in the days without the modern things we uh, have today because we didn't have the modern things we have today back in those days and sometimes it's good to look to the past to know where you're headed in the future and other uh, cliche remarks (laughs) such as that No, but really, it is kind of, um, it's a fun, fun pastime for us to, to think about how, how things used to be and how far we've come. And maybe there are some things that we wish, uh, could go back. It seemed like, you know, things moved a little slower back then. Um, of course, modern medicine is a nice thing to have. Maybe if we could have like the modern medicine with the slower, simpler times of uh, those old timey times, and that would be a really awesome, awesome uh, way to live, in my opinion. So I'm going to stop talking now, and I'm going to play a song called Reflections by the Supremes. Reflections of you and me Reflections of the way life used to be Reflections of the love you... I was curious what people did before mirrors. Like, how did they get ready? How did they know if their face was dirty or something was wrong? But as I began to research things, it took me in a really different direction than I thought that I was going in. So the earliest known mirrors were from Anatolia around 6000 BC. They were made from polished stone, but the Mayans, ancient Chinese, ancient Egyptians, and other cultures around the world did make mirrors for the ruling class, but they were made from things like highly polished copper, obsidian, or lead. So you could kind of see yourself, but not very well or very accurately. I mean, imagine never knowing what you look like. Someone could tell you your eye color or like if your nose was big or small, if you were good looking or not, someone would probably mention that. But imagine brushing your hair, never knowing if it looked good, never knowing if you had dirt all over your face or something was wrong. And since you didn't grow up ever seeing yourself, it's not something you were conditioned to think of. The standard mirror that we have was invented in 1835, but before then, the only people who owned a mirror were the rich, which it's kind of strange to think that it was considered a privilege that you might not experience in your lifetime, that seeing your own reflection was really only for the elite. And the weird thing is, too, that once mirrors became more commonplace, historians claim that as more people could see their own reflection, they became more aware. They became more possessed of a sense of individuality 
and it really changed so many things. In medieval times, pre-mirrors, people defined themselves very much by their household, their guild, their church. Not just like, oh, I belong to that, or I go there, or I'm related to them. They were like a hive mind community. But with the introduction of mirrors, as scientists say, mirrors are used to test self-recognition in humans and animals. Researchers infer that if subjects can tell that the image on the reflective surface is in fact them, they have developed a cognitive sense of self. And society made a big shift when they no longer saw themselves as part of a community as a whole, but as individuals making up a community. Artists began to paint a lot of self-portraits, something that they couldn't have done before. Novelists began writing in first person because now it somehow was more relatable. People could more easily step into the thoughts of another person. People began to want to know the time and date they were born because they wanted to find out about astrology, like what do the stars predict about my health and fortune? Families who used to sleep all in the same room or hall started wanting space, their own rooms. They wanted more privacy. I think all these little changes really add up to a completely different society. And I think a cognitive sense of self, well, sometimes it's nice not to be self-conscious or self-aware. I think it shows the importance that people put on appearance, that someone who was or wasn't good looking, once they knew, once they saw themselves, it would change their actions accordingly, to be proud or to be embarrassed and it burst a sort of bubble of innocence. This was, you know, one last thing people had had to worry about or stress over, and now they were just very aware of how they looked, how they were presenting to society, how someone else might perceive them. Whereas before, that was not something that they really thought about. Like so many things, it's a blessing and a burden. The song I'm going to play is called Black Mirror, and I don't know how they say it in English, but in Korean, <laughs> it looks like it's Wanase. Black Mirror. We are on this Babylon. The problem is Black Mirror. Hey there, Emily here, and today I'm going to talk about refrigerators and the history of refrigerating food. I think that's that's pretty much the main um, <laughs> the main thing refrigerators do. Sorry, I have my recording buddy who is a cat, uh, our cat named Spock, and he was sniffing at the microphone and then decided to take the long way across my recording area by walking over the uh, laptop. <laughs> that I'm using. <laughs> He's a cat through and through. But anyway, refrigerators. It is certainly an appliance that I take for granted until the power goes out for any length of time. And then, you know, I start worrying about the food in there. And I think we've all had those those moments. So what were people doing? How did they do that before our modern electronic world we all live in. 
Um, well, the first cooling systems for food involved ice. So artificial refrigeration began in the mid-1750s and then developed in the early 1800s. In 1834, the first working vapor compression refrigeration system was built, and the first commercial ice-making machine was invented in 1854. In 1913, refrigerators for home use were invented, and in 1923, Frigidaire, that name might ring a bell, introduced the first self-contained unit. So then there was the introduction of Freon in the 1920s, and then that just blew open the refrigerator door of the refrigerator market during the 1930s. So ancient Iranians actually were the first, were among the first to invent a form of a large evaporative cooler called a yakchal. And I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I did look it up and that is, that's the only thing I came up with. But if somebody wants to tell me that I'm doing it wrong, that's fine. I can take it. (laughs) So this yakchal is a Um, subterranean storage space and it kind of looks like a giant beehive uh, on top of the ground. It's pretty pretty cool. Um, It was often used to store ice but it was sometimes used to store food as well. The subterranean space coupled with the thick heat resistant construction um, insulated the storage space year-round. So They were mainly uh, built and used in Persia, and there's actually quite a few that were built hundreds of years ago that remain standing today. So talk about a long, um, a long refrigerator lifespan. I don't know that there are many hundreds year old refrigerators that you could still use today and you might not want to as we will find out because refrigerators for personal use got a little bit scary and dangerous so before electricity they there were ice houses and ice boxes and those were used to provide cool storage for most of the year Um, They would usually place these near freshwater lakes packed with snow and ice during the winter. It was a very common thing once upon a time. And people still use those kinds of things today. So, you know, if it ain't ain't broke, don't fix it. (laughs) So, uh, but yes, the refrigerators did become a dangerous thing. Um, Some refrigerators... (laughs) were, I think it was in like the 50s and 60s, they had a, and maybe even before that, but they had a locking device when you shut the door and it could only be opened from the outside. So when people started disposing of these refrigerators in, you know, garbage dumps, or maybe just you happen to be a person who collects things on your property and you have an old refrigerator, Um, And children are curious, and they might get inside the refrigerator and then not be able to get out because you couldn't get out unless you opened it from the outside. So there are some 
uh, tragic incidences of of kids actually dying because they just they couldn't get out of the refrigerator incidentally in the movie back to the future where they use a delorean as a time machine the original idea was to use a refrigerator an old timey refrigerator as a time machine but they were worried that uh kids would be like hey let's play back to the future in this old refrigerator and get stuck um so they changed their minds and rightly so they did a good job probably saved some kids lives by switching over to a sweet delorean which i think also had some uh issues as well though maybe not deadly but those doors are not very practical so that is just a little little snippet of history on how we got uh how we went from ice boxes and and uh yak chals to the electric refrigerator you probably have in your kitchen today so the song i chose is cold as ice by foreigner Do you wear glasses? If you do, you're in good company. Not only do all three of us infringers wear glasses, but nearsightedness is totally trending. By 2050, scientists predict more than roughly half the global population will be nearsighted. And to add to your weird facts, in Seoul, South Korea, about 95% of 19-year-old men are now myopic. And another interesting fact, in 2017, rich people shared with the New Yorker their secrets for doomsday prep, and both a current and former CEO of Reddit said that they'd had surgery to correct their nearsightedness to ensure that when the world ends, they could see it burn in HD from their own eyeballs. I might have summarized that last part a little bit, but people back in the day, many less people than there are now, still had vision issues. Aristotle is believed to have mentioned it in 350 BC, and he used for the first time the word muops, derived from muen to close, and ops, the eye. That's where we get optometrist and ophthalmologist from. In history, people who were nearsighted were historically valued in artisan type fields, uh, in European monasteries where illuminating manuscripts and painting Bibles required tiny precise brushstrokes. It's said that far from being given any correction, people were actually encouraged to remain in their myopic condition because it was actually ideal for them doing this kind of job. There is even some evidence that they might have interbred people in the hopes of producing super nearsighted children who would be the future illuminators of manuscripts. And what about glasses? Well, Emperor Nero who lived around 60 AD was said to be nearsighted because he frequently blinked when he wanted to see something. And it's claimed he watched gladiator fights through a concave emerald. 
peasant. Hand me my seeing eye, Emerald. Though they say he probably just used it because it was green and that was presumed to be a soothing color. So is his emotional support giant Emerald. The first inventor of actual wearable glasses is unknown. However, the Romans first discovered the ability to use glass to enhance their ability to see uh, by creating small magnifying glasses with spheres. The first wearable glasses known to history appeared in Italy during the 13th century. Primitive glass-blown lenses were set into wood or leather frames, or occasionally animal horn, and then held before the face or perched on the nose. Merchants began to carry spectacles along the Silk Road to Asia, and they served as status symbols. Some judiciary committees in China even mandated spectacles as part of the uniform. Even sunglasses were first innovated in China during the 12th century, but they were not for vision or protection from the sun. Instead, they were used to obscure the eyes of judges in court so that no one could determine their expressions. They were very mysterious. Customers would try on glasses and choose a pair through trial and error, often from a traveling peddler. But in the 1800s, people began receiving actual eye exams for glasses. And in 1862, Dutch ophthalmologist Herman Snellen invented the standardized eye chart. And so here we are today with our optometrists and ophthalmologists seeing stuff, sticking contacts in our eyes, and not being forced into a monastic life illustrating ancient texts. The song is Sunglasses at Night by Corey Hart. You, listener, over there! Yeah, you're the one I'm talking to. Listen up, I'm gonna tell you a little secret. Turns out, KSKQ is having their biannual pledge drive coming up in a couple weeks. It's gonna be going from the 30th of October to the 13th of November. So this is a great opportunity for you, my friend, to open your heart and your wallet to KSKQ and uh, donate a little money, if you know what I mean. So please listen out for the pledge drive from October 30th to November 13th. Tell your friends, too. As a person who is moderately obsessed with time, and how long things are going to take, and how uh, much time I have, and when I need to be places for things. Um, I have found myself often wondering, how did people do that back in the day? How did someone in ancient Roman times say, hey Brutus, meet me at the Trevi Fountain, at five o'clock sharp and don't be late or we're through all right it's over between you and me if you're not there by five i have always found that stressful 
Um, so we will talk now about how they did do that. How did people get up on time for things? Um, we all have a circadian rhythm, a natural rhythm, uh, that we follow where we, most of us get tired at night and we wake up when the sun rises. So people, people have done that forever. People have been doing that since as long as there were people, but sometimes people need to get up before the sun rises right? Or maybe someone took an afternoon nap and they needed to get up to meet their loved one somewhere. (laughs) I don't know. Any number of situations could be happening. So I wasn't wrong in thinking that it might be a difficult task. Uh, It's the simple act of telling time has been a huge challenge to humans um, throughout the ages, and people have been trying to solve this problem with elaborate inventions. The ancient Greeks and Egyptians developed sundials and towering obelisks that would mark the time with a shadow uh, that moved with the sun, and dating back to around 1500 BC, humans produced hourglasses, water clocks, and oil lamps, which calibrated the passing of hours with movements of sand, water, and oil. And out of these early inventions came a few rudimentary attempts to create a some sort of alarm system, uh, such as a candle clock. And these were devices from ancient China. They were embedded with nails. There was a candle embedded with nails, and the nails would be released as the wax melted away, leaving the nails to clatter loudly into a metal tray below at a designated time. And that would, in turn, hopefully uh, wake the sleeper. But those kinds of inventions were unpredictable and (laughs) unreliable. So more precise mechanical inventions were created. And humans had to um, depend on other ways of timekeeping. Like the internal body clock that I spoke of before. So we have two processes that underlie our natural sleeping and waking patterns. There's homeostasis and circadian rhythms. Um, This was uh, from a researcher named Melinda Jackson. Um, And she talks about how the main principle underlying homeostasis, um, which is a signaling process that's governed by the hypothalamus region in the brain, is that the longer we're awake, the higher our drive for sleep or likelihood of falling asleep is. So she said, when we fall asleep, the drive for sleep dissipates across the night, which then signals that it's time to wake up. So then overlaying this, there is the circadian rhythm, which is also controlled by cells in the hypothalamus. And it's a parallel process that regulates phases of sleepiness and alertness over the course of the day. So this process is affected by light and dark, meaning that the periods of alertness and sleepiness usually correspond with morning light and nighttime darkness. And in an era before alarms, Jackson said that it's probable that this is how people woke up. They were just cued by the accumulated hours of sleep paired with the rays of the rising sun. So I found that answer to be eh, 
yeah, somewhat satisfactory. I feel like knowing myself, I would not be able to rely on those particular rhythms. Um, although maybe I would be more tired. Maybe I'd be like working in a field all day and that would just get my circadian rhythms into shape. And my, the other one, what was the other one called? Homeostasis. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so another way that people would wake up, and I think this one is uh, possibly my favorite, would be the pea shooter. So by the 1600s and into the 1700s, self-reliance for waking up became less crucial with the spread of the first domestic alarm clocks. They were known as lantern clocks, and they were driven by internal weights that would strike a bell as an alarm. In 1800s Britain, wealthier families would employ (laughs) knocker-uppers, people armed with long sticks that they used to tap incessantly on someone's window until they were roused. Some knocker-uppers even used straws through which they would shoot peas at their clients' windows. And these human timekeepers were gradually replaced by the spread of cheap alarm clocks in the 1930s and 1940s, and those are the precursors to um, the alarm clock as we know it today. Although probably a lot of us rely on our phones. I know I do. That's where I'm setting all of my alarms. Um, so yeah, they had they had knocker uppers and pea shooters, and I feel like it would take a very specific type of person to be that person because that person would have to wake up at a certain time. So they must have just had a very strong uh, circadian rhythm that got them up and they were ready to wake other people up. Although it'd be kind of a cool job, I think. Although I feel like it might come with some kind of resentment for people who were sleeping. And what if you couldn't wake them up? Would you still get paid even though you were trying? I don't know. I feel like there's a (laughs) a lot of questions I have for for the people who who did that job. So the song I chose is called Sleeping In because is there any greater joy than sleeping in and not being stressed about waking up or setting an alarm? So this is Sleeping In by Postal Service. Hi, Bobby here. In 1994, I was seven years old. That's 27 years ago. And so much has changed since 1994. And one of the most profound changes that I'm constantly reflecting on is the way that we take in entertainment. My sons are eight years old and four years old. And the way that they take in entertainment versus the way that I took in entertainment when I was their age is totally different. The fact of the matter is, pretty much every cartoon that ever existed, every movie that ever existed, is available to them whenever they want it. It's right there. And that's not a world that I grew up in. When I was their age, I had to wait for my favorite show to come on. If I wanted to watch Family Matters, I had to wait until Friday for it to come on TGIF. If I wanted to watch Doug, I had to wait 
until Saturday morning to watch it. And I knew, like, I was conscious of when my favorite shows would come on. One of the things that feels like such a relic, like, you can watch these cartoons, you can watch these movies from the 90s, and they're really great. They're exciting to watch. It feels like you're kind of stepping back in time. But one thing that feels like it has been lost to time is something so beautiful, something so fantastic. And I'm not sure if anyone in these newer generations will have the opportunity to experience this. To go into a store with the walls adorned with old and new videos, VHSs, tapes, where you can peruse pretty much whatever it is that the owner of the video store has chosen to be a part of their catalog, their selection, and you get to talk to the video store owner or someone who's working there and get recommendations or see the wall of recommendations of people that maybe you don't know, but for some reason you trust. It had the human aspect and that's what I miss most of all. I'm not sure with how much nostalgia, how many memories, how many stories that, that I'm, my wife and I might try to recreate for our children. I'm not sure if, if they can quite grasp what that was like because they didn't live it. They don't live in that time. And we did. And it was a really special thing on Friday night for my dad to get home from work. For, you know, a lot of us, we waited for all the family to be together and loaded up into the family vehicle and we drove to Blockbuster. We drove to some of the, you know, one of the many independent video stores that existed. And we walked in and we we chose a movie or a few movies that we would watch that weekend. It was special. It was magical. And so I think that it would be interesting to know what the perspective of a person who has not, did not live during that time, what their understanding of VHSs are and what video stores were and what they think about it. So I decided to sit down with my son my eight-year-old, and ask him about it, about VHS movies. All right, I am sitting here with my eight-year-old son, Weston. Weston, do you want to say hi to the listeners? Hi. Okay. Weston has something in his hand. Weston, do you want to describe what you're holding? Rectangular things. Um, it has something called Harry and the Hendersons on it with a picture of a man and you can put it inside something called a VHS. And what happens once you put it inside something called a VHS? It gets you get entertainment for all your trouble. <laughs> and so what uh videos do you have? Can you can you tell the listeners what videos you're holding? I have Charlotte's Web and Harry and the Hendersons. Do they do they um do the the do they look old? Yes, they do look very old. Like from the 70s or something. <laughs> yeah. So you're holding two VHS tapes. Yes. Um, and we talked about a special place that Mama and Daddy used to go to to find these VHS tapes. It was called a Blockbuster. Yeah. Back, we... Oh, back in the days, you didn't have fancy TVs or anything like electronics or mp3 players you had you all you had was a blockbuster and a vhs tape and so uh 
What do you understand about video stores? What what, what do they look like? What do they look like? Um, so it's this big store. Not not to mention it's it's pretty puny and small, but like in my description, it's big. They make millions, and they and they have a bunch of movies and movies that play in the background, because. If you don't want to get a movie and just want to sit in a chair while watching other people struggle to find movies, then, <laughs> yeah. So, Blockbuster is a place for you. Yeah, th- thank you, Weston. And so, uh, what? how do you think that watching movies then and watching movies now are different? Do you think they're different or are they similar? Okay, let's start back then in the 90s. So, you would need to put... A rectangular thing that sounded like this. Three, two, one. But now you need to like, like that. They had only old movies back then. All right, Weston. So I have a question for you. Okay. Mm-hmm. That question is, if someone had time traveled from the 90s to the year 2021 and they asked how do you watch movies now what would you tell them how would you explain the process you get a movie you rent the movie you put it inside a fire tv you watch the movie with popcorn or something yeah that's a very good process. What if they're like, what's a fire TV? Does it actually use fire? No. Fire TV, fire is just like a symbol for like, like I guess like the energy it runs on or something. Not like actual fire, but like mm-hmm. fire, to, like the, the addition of it, like how new or old or in between it is or something okay so i'm 90s time traveler man okay and i have a question for you where's the vcr how are you watching movies without a vcr okay what i'm doing is i get the tv i type in like trolls or like anything in general like a movie or show and then it pops up i rent it if it costs money then you need to rent it but if it doesn't cost money, then you need to you need to just click on like watch like the little triangle button. That's all fine and dandy, Weston. But where do I put my money in the TV? Do they take dollar bills? No, they do not take dollar bills. They take cash. They take that it's not it's similar to that, but not all movies cost money and some of them do cost money, but you don't have to put in the money the same way that it was in the 90s. Gotcha. Thank you, Weston, for explaining all of that, especially to those 90s time travelers. You're welcome. Because they, they got to know. Well, Weston, I'm so glad that we got to sit down, and we have a special treat that we're going to be giving to Weston and his little brother. And that special treat is that in a couple of weeks, we will be visiting Bend. And we will be going to the last blockbuster. Weston, how do you feel about that? I feel good. I feel good about it. What are you expecting when you walk through those uh, electrical sliding doors? People trying (laughs) to look at movies. (laughs) Can you hear the emotion in this boy's voice? So hopefully we can 
give the gift of a VHS store to the next generation and pass the torch in a small way, but in a meaningful way. So Weston, thank you so much for sitting down with me and talking about these uh, these relics that we call VHS tapes. VHS tapes. <laughs> All right. Thank you and good night. The song that I chose is called VCR and it's by The Bronx featuring Brody Dolly. DJ, drop that beat, 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 beat. All right, folks. Well, that time has arrived. Emily, do you want to tell the listeners what time that is? Sure. It's sadly, it is the time where we must say goodbye for the eve and see you on the morrow. And bid you adieu. And so with that being said, we just are grateful that you took the time to listen to our show, to listen to KSKQ. And if you just hang tight, there is another fantastic show following us called world music with sophia blanton it's a fantastic show with lots of great music and so until next monday we want to say we love you and sayonara good night everyone you say you